Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Public Health Podcast. We are Kevin and Zio from the Harker Public Health Club, and we were so happy to be joined today by Dr. Yan Singh. Dr. Singh is currently a frontline doctor working as a primary care provider in San Diego. She attended Case Western Reserve University and is now a junior resident at UCSD with an MS and MD degrees. In this episode, Dr. Singh passionately shares the experiences she has encountered during her work in COVID times. She also discusses the three types of vaccines, trends for getting back to normal, herd immunity, COVID-19 variants, and concludes with advice for young people seeking to help out during this time. The following is the passionate discussion that she had with us. Um, hi, my name is uh, uh, Anne, um, or you can call me Dr. Singh. Um, I'm currently a second year uh, internal medicine resident at UCSD internal medicine program. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm here to share my experiences and answer questions um, that uh, um, about COVID pandemic um, or any questions are COVID related. Um, so part of the um, as part of the medicine physician duties is to take care of patients who are hospitalized, um, as well as patients that are outpatient uh, through the clinics. So I was able to um, take care of a variety of patients in different settings uh, during the past year and a half. Um, and um, I took care of um, ICU patients, so patients who required intensive care unit, um, who had to be um, taken care of them through the intensive care unit um, at the peak of the COVID pandemic, so in July and January, July last year and January this year. Uh, I was also um, able to take care of some patients who were hospitalized um, at UCSD Hillcrest and La Jolla. Um, and um, also, I had the privilege to take care of some patients uh, through my um, outpatient clinic in different settings. Um, so I'm here to um, share my experiences and answer any questions that people have. Yeah, so um, you've had like many experience, years of experience in the medical field, of course. So could you tell us a little bit about how COVID like affected your work and some of the challenges during the pandemic and like how like your day-to-day kind of changed before and after the pandemic? Uh, that's a really good question. So I think the COVID pandemic hit um the, the San Diego area around March last year, so almost exactly the same time, or a little earlier, um, a year ago. Um, and um, we were, in a way, unprepared. Um, I think there was a lag between the Eastern time. At that time, New York was already hit very hard, um, but we were not very prepared in terms of our PPE supplies, um, and then just in terms of rotations-wise, like we will need more people to cover the inpatient uh, unit. Um, so I think at the beginning was definitely um, a little bit more unprepared. We didn't have adequate access to the PPEs, um, and there was some stigma um, at that time, also debate of whether wearing masks will prevent COVID. Um, you know, is that really necessary? Um, so I was um, I was working at the VA at that time um, uh, at the infectious disease um, uh, consult unit. So we got lots of questions from other team members and the CDC guidelines were changing a lot um, as well. So we were given one mask per week. So we had to keep the same mask <laughs> for the whole week at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and then if your mask was damaged in any way, so there was one time that the side of the mask um, fell off, um, we had to staple it back because there's no more mask for us, which now it sounds kind of ironic because we all know that we need to wear a mask and that's the best way to prevent spread of the pandemic. I, I guess at the beginning, there was a lot of unknowns about what to do. Um, so that was the situation. And then um, some we had a lot of struggles getting access to PPE, um, even while we were working in the ICU at that time. So um, I had a patient that needed, um, I, I suspect, highly suspect that he will have COVID. Um, and I was 
requesting to have gowns and you know a surgical mask um and um, a 95 especially i had to go through a whole protocol in order to get access to a 95 um, because they wouldn't be able to give those masks um, freely to everyone. So I had to put in a request form and justify why I think this patient has COVID and has to be reviewed and then all the masks will be stocked with the, uh, the, the charge nurse. So I had to go through the whole nursing staff in order to get that mask. So there was a delay in the patient care at the beginning for sure. Um, and I think things um, in terms of PPE supplies and just our understanding of COVID um, got significantly better um, around May. So um, around May time, that's when CDC guideline changed saying that um, um, it will be important to wear masks and social distance. Um, and, and um, you know, they also studied that um, wearing masks in the inpatient setting, taking care of patients will prevent the spread of COVID uh, in the hospital setting. So um, that's when that the PPE supplies became much better and I was able to get good access. Um, and in terms of the workload, um, I, I think that um, the July um, when I worked in, in the ICU, um, and that was the first of the peak of COVID was definitely pretty tough because at that time you're still um, mixed voice about what COVID is about, what it, COVID kills people. Um, and um, I think unfortunately leadership of a country at that time didn't help. So there was a lot of rumor in the community that COVID is not the, it's, it wouldn't be the cause of death or cause, cause of severe illness. So I had patients that were hospitalized and um, for weeks and weeks and were really sick. And then I had to call their family communicating that their lungs were severely damaged because of COVID. And I still got the questions like, oh, I didn't know that COVID would be this bad. I thought COVID wouldn't kill anyone. Um, and um, because of the rumors and the popular media at that time. Um, so there were a lot of challenges. We have lots of patients that are international. So their family is still back in Mexico, um, but the border was closed. So the only way to communicate to the patients that were ventilated, of course, you know, once they're ventilated, they won't be able to communicate to us directly. Um, so we'll have to call their family member um, who live in Mexico, uh, would be through phone calls or iPad. Um, and a lot of the patient's families were not very technolo technologically savvy, so they wouldn't know how iPad works. So there were a lot of times that we have to talk to them over the phone and communicating that the patients are not doing very well and this is basically the end of their life. So um, they have to make really hard decisions over the phone, like whether to withdraw care or continue aggressive care, knowing that they might be diminishing return at this point. Um, and then we had lots of heartbreaking conversations over the phone. I think not seeing the family member and then put that stress on the family, families, um, uh, uh, family members uh, internationally um, because the border was closed. They would require a different type of visa that wouldn't be granted in time to make the decisions. Um, that was really hard from a provider's uh, perspective, also from a family's perspective. We also did um, some what we call um, compassionate extubation, meaning that patient was near the end of your life um, and uh, will have to be extubated at that point through iPad. Um, and then to me, that was the toughest because in order to understand the gravity of the situation, I think a lot of times having family invited to visit uh, the patient is the best way to see what I'm talking about. You know, a lot of times I'm talking about, oh, the patient is very sick on uh, four different pressors. You know, we have to make sure the patient is paralyzed. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense without the context, without seeing what the patient is actually going through. Um, so, yeah, so those aspects are really difficult. And also to care of patients um, 
um, in December and until February in the inpatient setting this year. Um, and we all know that's the peak of the pandemic. Um, and um, I think it just is difficult um, for patients who are near the um, near the time of intubation to make that decision. Do they want to get intubated knowing that we almost had no success uh, getting them off the ventilator? Or, you know, if they're going to suffer without the um, ventilation, just purely on oxygen, their numbers are really low, they're suffocating, and we know that's not the best route. So those are really difficult decisions and difficult conversations to have with patients. And I think just calling family and letting them know that, you know, on a daily basis, when they ask us, like, oh, what's the success rate? And I have to be very honest with them that, that we didn't have anyone successfully extubated for almost a whole month. And that was a really tough statistics to give to the family member. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing those stories and experiences. It's really moving. And I think one of the things that uh, could provide some hope is that we are starting to distribute vaccines. I think the latest number is that nearly 20% of Americans are fully vaccinated. and 35% like have already gotten the first shot. So I guess the question that people are wondering is how many, how much are things improving and how long do you think it would be before we can perhaps get to normal or reach herd immunity? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think in terms of the trend, um, if we look at the January, February statistics in terms of ICU capacity, as well as the number of patients ventilated at that time, it was over 200 at UCSD alone. I'm talking about other hospital systems um, as well. And then we, um, I just from a you know insider point of view, we didn't have ICU bed available for a long time, and that was the peak of the pandemic. So things, um, since the the vaccines were um, getting provided to the medical staffers and then to the patients at the SNF, and then gradually to patients with you know um, uh, who are elderly with medical comorbidities, we see the numbers coming down. So I actually just checked this morning. I think. We only have around 10 to 20 patients of, of, uh, uh, that are hospitalized uh, at UCSD. And then we're talking about single digits for uh, patients who are on ventilator. And that's a drastic decrease from you know over 200 at the peak of the pandemic. Um, so things are definitely moving in the right direction. Um, I think um, the term herd immunity, of course, is all hypothetical. But just in general, we're looking at at least 75% of the general population being vaccinated. Um, to think that we have some sort of protection from each other. So I think until we reach that number, um, things wouldn't return to quote-unquote normal. Of course, that's a gradual situation that California is looking at completely eliminating the color system in two months. And right now we have just been downgraded from purple color to orange color, meaning that we have a lot more capacities available from indoor dining, entertainment is opening. Um, you know, things are gradually back to where it was. Um, you know, of course, you know, with social distancing, with masking. Um, and then uh, until we reach that number, the 75%, and then until things are remain stable as what it is, I can't see things completely back, back to being normal per se pre-COVID. But I think we, we have the flexibilities now enjoying somewhat what we were enjoying before, you know, the restaurant scene. Um, and some of the entertainment and some schools are, you know, opening back to uh, in-person learning as well. So I think things are returning back to where it was gradually. Um, I think we can all definitely agree it's really hard to get access to the vaccine at this point. Um, and I was just wondering if from a healthcare provider's perspective, you've noticed that there's any sort of like socioeconomic barrier to getting the vaccine and what that might look like. Yeah, so I take care of um, patients from a variety of backgrounds, and I've definitely noticed that for patients who don't have, um, you know, um, a good computer system, who are not very t 
technologically savvy um, are the ones that are most uh, are facing the most challenges because all these um, um, vaccine slots have to be made um, online. Um, or if you, you jump on the phone, um, from what I've heard, it can take hours. And for working class, nobody has the freedom to stay on the phone for hours just to be booked for a vaccine. Um, and of course, for patients who have their PCP, meaning that they have established care from any of the healthcare system, for example, UCSD, and UCSD would be proactive to reach out to those patients and offer the vaccine slots. So uh, that would be a lot easier for them to book through any of the UCSD sites um, in that sense. But there are lots of patients um, who unfortunately don't have their PCPs for whatever reason. You know, lots of people have their insurance change all the time. Um, they don't have time to establish care with a PCP. And those are the ones I think are getting discriminated the most because there are a lot more loopholes they have to jump in order to um, get vaccinated. And for patients who have questions about the vaccines, if you don't have a primary care doctor or if their primary care doctor is very busy or they don't have a single person they can talk to, it becomes much harder. So I have patients that have questions about COVID vaccines. And then um, for me, as a provider, just offering a personal story that I have been vaccinated and these are the side effects that I personally experienced and this is the experience I have had. And seeing that face and just hearing that voice from a personal point of view helps a lot of them to make the decision to go ahead and vaccinate it. Because this is the first MRA, mRNA uh, vaccinations that human beings, you know, have ever encountered. And I, I understand that why people, you know, patients and everybody has uncertainties um, about these vaccines because it's something that we've never had before. Um, I think it's just helpful to hear from someone, anyone they, they, they trust to share that perspective. And then without having the PCPs, I think the most challenging part um, um, from a social economic point of view. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think you touched on this part, but I was also wondering about like, because we know that the vaccine public distrust is a really big challenge in the vaccine. So why do you think there's like so much hesitancy among the people to take the vaccine? And what do you think are like the recommendations for public health experts to best ways to approach the public to ensure the public trust in vaccines so we can get like as many people vaccinated as possible? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in general, this trace back to um, this um, um, this anti-vaccination um, paradigm that happened many years ago. There was a paper that came out of Lancet um, saying that you know there was a study saying that injecting MMR vaccine in children can cause autism. Um, therefore, a lot of the uh, Hollywood celebrities stopped uh, vaccinating their kids, and that um, led to the outbreak of measles. So that was maybe 30, 30, 20 to 30 years ago when this happened. Um, and that started this whole you know, trend of people starting not to trust the vaccine, and vaccines are getting, in a way, um, 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 it, there's politics of vaccine. So people will see this as science versus anti-science or religion, if you call that, or they call it, you know, um, this big pharma versus, you know, um, you know, anti-big pharma. So it, it completely, there's, once things, once there's a political element involved in anything, um, it is, it is, it becomes more difficult because we cannot get the neutral perspective out. Um, and um, I think it's just in general, um, every year we see um, only a fraction of the population getting vaccinated with flu vaccine, which is recommended for everyone. And then every year, um, you know, a large portion of the elderly population unfortunately die of uh, influenza. Um, and I think it got um, ex um, exacerbated over the past year uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, with the leadership saying that COVID was not real, um, you know, um, there was a lot of mis distrust in just in COVID in general. There was a lot of 
um, um, discrepant voice about what COVID was about. And I think none of this would help with the COVID vaccine. Now, it's a new form of vaccine that's come out because there's a lot of confusion what, what, you know, about COVID itself, um, as well as this you know, trend that people are looking at. Is there, uh, they have a lot of doubts about vaccine in general. I think a combination of these elements all have led to questions about COVID vaccine. And then um, what I have found out interestingly is that um, if you talk to someone who don't believe in vaccine at all, just talk about your fear and your concerns, and then you relay yourself, yes, I'm vaccinated, my families are getting vaccinated. Um, and um, yeah, so it's not just something that I will offer to my patient, it's something that I have done, and then I experience side effects, and this is what I have done. And patients, if they can relate to you, it's not something that, it's not about a power relationship, it's not about a doctor telling a patient, or, you know, you know, with forcing a patient to do something is someone as a friend offering my personal experience. And I found out that a lot of times if they have questions and concerns, I talk through about them through a personal experience. And then they're more acceptable. And then lots of patients are actually, I got a vaccine in the end. Um, and I, I really wish everybody could have this opportunity to talk to someone. Um, not necessarily a doctor, although I think it helps to hear from a doctor just anyone about their personal experience going through this pandemic and going through the vaccination process. Yeah, definitely. I think that that personal connection is really important when it comes to um, talking about the pandemic and like, you know, talking through different perspectives. Um, and I just wanted to ask, like, in relation to the vaccine specifically, like, can you explain a little bit about what doctors mean by like vaccine efficacy and what are like some of the differences between the three vaccines at the moment? Uh -huh. Yeah, so at the moment, uh, we have Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson. Um, I don't know Johnson Johnson the best because uh, most of the vaccines that are offered through my clinic site um, are Pfizer and Moderna, um, and they are mRNA-based vaccines. Um, so uh, with those vaccines, as I said, this is the first time that human beings are seeing mRNA vaccines, um, and um you know, they're getting injected and then they create the uh, antibodies that will be uh, fighting the COVID uh, virus. Um, and then Pfizer and Moderna um, are two-shot vaccine and Johnson Johnson is one-shot vaccine. Um, and then the first uh, Pfizer and Pfizer, a Pfizer vaccine requires two shots or ideally 21 days apart and Moderna will be four weeks apart. So when we're looking at the efficacy, um, the original papers when they study those vaccines are based on clinical trials. So they have you know, three stages of clinical trials, and we're looking at good clinical trials from human studies. Um, so volunteers that will go ahead and get, you know, placebo, meaning saline or, you know, nothing in it versus um, um, Pfizer or Moderna. So they're looking at over time how many people would contract COVID, you know, provided that they will be in similar settings. They will be, you know, in the same community. They will be having similar, uh, you know, um, uh, comorbidity profiles, you know, for example, heart disease, hypertension, age, they will have similar things and then match their characteristics and then look at their outcomes. So how many people get COVID by the end of six weeks or eight weeks, um, having them got the vaccine or the placebo, meaning nothing in it. So it will be a double-blinded study, meaning that neither the, um, the, the patient who received the vaccine or the researcher knows that what they are getting. So um, by designing this, what we call the randomized control trials, meaning that it's completely randomized. You could be in the control group or the placebo group. Um, and then you, I don't know where you're getting. Nobody knows where you're getting. Um, and then we're looking at your outcome. How, ma how many of them will be getting COVID? And how many of them will be getting COVID so bad that they require hospitalizations? 
and then that's what what they call the efficacy number and they did the, the um, at the end they have this outcome numbers okay so we'll say like three people in the uh, vaccine group have got um COVID by the end of it and then say like 120 people um provided that they have similar characteristics similar exposure have got um COVID and in a way then you plug in the calculator and that's what you got was the efficacy number so interestingly now Pfizer um have extended the eligibility to children above the age of 16. So they specifically studied uh, children above the age of 16. And their um, result is that for patients, uh, younger patients that got vaccinated with Pfizer, nobody got COVID. And then there's someone, a few of them got COVID without the vaccine. Therefore, their conclusion is that um, Pfizer will be 100% uh, efficacious. To the to the to the um, to the younger population. Of course, you know nothing is a hundred percent. We know that um, uh, even with the best vaccine, it wouldn't be a hundred percent. But that's just based on the studies. Um, that's the number we get. Um, of course, you know there are limitations of all studies and clinical trials for sure have a lot of limitations. For example, they're looking at some. Um, um, I, I got that. Um, I, I was asked about this question about Moderna. They said that Moderna was like ninety four percent efficacious to the Asian population specifically and. Pfizer might have been like in the in the seventies. Um, is Pfizer more inferior uh, vaccination to the Asian population? Um, you know, um, based on the study, yes. But if you look more closely about the number, um, you will find out that Pfizer didn't recruit that many Asian um, patients to start with. So if our sample size is, is smaller, the number will have less power because we, we didn't recruit as many people to be to have the result to have a generalizable is what we use that can be generalized to the population. So the smaller the sample we have, the less power the study is. So that number doesn't really mean much if we don't have a lot of the patients that were recruited. Um, so those are the limitations because it was based on a smaller population and then we didn't really in include um, a very diverse um, you know, set of populations um, and the patients, the, the, the ones that recruited with the comorbidities may not be the ones that you know patient has. So it is very individualized, but just from a patient population, like a large scale um, perspective, vaccine has shown to provide benefit, has shown to be quite efficacious against COVID. And then just looking at the timeline of patients that are ventilated and hospitalized, um, and the timeline of when the first vaccine was getting administered and the number of vaccines over time, we definitely see a correlation. Nowadays, um, you know, it's, it's the COVID surge is over. Things are opening. We don't have any, as many patients sick with COVID and certainly not as many patients sick with COVID getting hospitalized. So overall, that's a positive trend. Um, and I think from that, we can also draw the conclusion that um, the vaccine has provided benefit. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a really important point in terms of like, instead of comparing the vaccines, focusing on how we have three really good effective vaccines and uh, getting everyone vaccinated as soon as possible in terms of like taking the vaccine at the earliest availability. Yes. And also, yeah. And also another question I think related to this topic is, um, I think a lot of people are hearing about the different variants of the COVID-19 virus. So could you just help explain like, what are the differences between the variants and how much should we be worried about new variants in terms of like, for example, not being susceptible to the vaccines that we have? That's a really good question. So, um, so as we know that um, viruses mutate, that's why every year we have to register the flu vaccine. Um, and then the flu vaccine, this is kind of off topic, is based on the prediction of this year what a mutant would like. 
So just by the uh, natural history that um, the virus has mutated, and then we know from what we know, there's the British mutant that is a, l- a little bit more prevalent in the United States now. There's a Brazilian mutant, um, and there is the South African mutant. So there are slightly different variants of the original um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, the ge- in terms of genetic coding of it. Um, and um, I can't give you like exactly what the genetic coding, the differences are, but in general, the purpose of, you know, mutation or evolution in general is so that it can spread a little bit more it can cause more death from a virus point of view you know from just you know if we want to survive as a from a virus point of view we have to spread to more people i have to be a little more dangerous right so that's that's the challenge for this mutant is that um it has a higher what we call infectivity mean that um you know we're looking at this particular um uh, coefficient that predicts you know if the virus if someone has virus of one person, how many people they can be spreading out in a you know in general in a general setting you know without masking or so on and so forth. Um, and that's the challenge because we know that it, it has it has come across the board, um the ocean and now it's in the United States. Um, and then I just recently listened to the broadcast that um it constitutes um almost half of the newly diagnosed COVID um, COVID nineteen cases, meaning that it is showing that it is spreading out. So I know that Pfizer has um. Um, has put out a statement that um, it, it is protective of the COVID, um, of the, the British mutant. Um, don't know about the efficacy against Brazilian or the South African, which are not as prevalent. But we can anticipate that as um, time goes on, these mutants will you know, not only become more prevalent, but also continue to mutate. That's, that's going to happen. Um, and, um, you know, and then this is an ongoing study of whether this vaccine will be protective of further mutants. You know, we don't know about that. So um, our hope is that um, I think that will happen is to have booster shots. So now we have two shots of vaccine, which are protective of the existing COVID. And hopefully the British mutant, which, you know, still, there's still data that um, are coming out. So we don't know for sure. But the data that have come out is saying that it is protective. Um, and then hopefully with the mutant, uh, with the booster vaccine, meaning that once you are already fully vaccinated, you um, administer booster vaccine, it will give you additional protection. And hopefully um, our research um, is going to um, come up with a booster vaccine later this year so that we can continue getting um, the protection. And I think the challenge with the booster vaccine is that you have to be fully vaccinated first in order to get a booster. You cannot just show up, okay, I'm getting the third booster shot today. That's not going to work. So that's the, why we're stressing the importance of everybody getting vaccinated today. Um, in the, uh, in the, there's going to be research, you know, um, hopefully um, with um, the booster shot coming out soon. Um, and then we are having more studies coming out. And then that goes back to why it is so important for everybody to get vaccinated today. Yeah, definitely. And I guess um, our final question for today would be, um, like, so there's a lot of young people who, see like everything that's happening and really want to find ways to help out and so um we're just wondering if you wanted to talk about any ways that we could like get involved and help out uh, thank you so much first of all i was very privileged that um I, I i received so much support from lots of different community groups um during the COVID pandemic um at the beginning of the COVID pandemic when we didn't have reliable access to ppe through our institutions I was able to receive N95 through the donations here. Um, I was able to receive lots and lots of supplies. And that really helped me to go through that really tough, tough time that we really didn't know enough about COVID. You know, there wasn't enough supplies. 
Um, and then I received um, free lunches from the local schools here. And that was really nice. And then each lunchbox, there was a, a photo attached uh, in front of some drawings. And they're like, oh, thank you so much for your hard work. And it just brightens your day, you know, when you're going through a tough day, not necessarily COVID, but just in general, a stressful day taking care of patients. Um, it's so refreshing to know that, um, you know, community members are very appreciated. Um, and I think just looking back from if I were a high school student, you know, what could I have done, you know, to help to support a COVID? I think one thing is that um, to just tell the young people around you that about the COVID vaccine. I think a lot of the, um, if you were look at, looking at the statistics, the patients um, that have the most resistance to the COVID vaccine are actually the younger generation. Interestingly, a lot of the elderly, either six, uh, 65 and above, have already been fully vaccinated. Um, through my clinic time, I've only maybe met one person or two people that were not vaccinated at above the age of 65. Um, and um, the vast majority of the patients that have doubts and core concerns about core vaccines are actually younger. Um, and also, they don't feel as, uh, as much threatened uh, by COVID as the elderly patients, because the elderly know that if they get COVID, it's, it can be very deadly. And um, I think it's just helpful to stress about this to your friends and to your family members and you know anyone that you interact with about the importance of getting COVID vaccine and also to act as a role model from with to the young people still continue practicing social distancing continue wearing masks I think it can be so easy to um, relax on it as someone who is young because you know COVID is basically dying out at this point quote unquote and then you know anyone in the age of you know in the twenties who would get COVID probably wouldn't die from COVID, you know, it would be an inconvenience, but that's the, that's what has caused the pandemic at the beginning. So the younger people who got COVID, unfortunately will be spreading out to the community, will spread to, to your mom, to your, your grandparents. Um, and that was the saddest one I saw from an ICU point of view is that a lot of the elderly patients who died of COVID got their COVID from their kids. Um, and then it's just hard, you know, when the kids will be blamed on their behaviors, um, and that that would have been too late. I think as, as, as you know, as high school students or, you know, anyone who is young, continue practicing um, and then advocating that it is still important to practicing social distancing, wearing masks, that would be critical to, to head in the right direction to potentially end the pandemic. Great. Okay. So thank you so much, Dr. Singh. We really appreciate you coming today. And uh, it was really interesting getting to learn about the pandemic from the perspective of a frontline doctor. Um, so thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. And then I just want to say that anyone who's interested uh, in becoming uh, a physician or interested in medicine in general, I'll be happy to mentor. I know that um, a, a, this year uh, was a definitely a tough year, um, but I think it's such a rewarding career. I, I, I have no regret of choosing to have become a physician um, and um, it, it is truly rewarding. So if anyone has questions about uh, medical school or you know residency or becoming a doctor in general, the field of medicine, um, welcome to reach out to me. Yeah, thank you so much for the work you do for the community. You're clearly like really passionate about it. So yeah, we're really happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin and Zio. Yeah, thank you. Maybe three of us, or is it going to be more participants? There's going to be three of us. Okay, yeah, I can get started. Um, hi, my name is uh, uh, Anne, um, or you can call me Dr. Singh. Um, I'm currently a second year uh, internal medicine resident at UCSD internal medicine program. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm here 